Let's pray together. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, make us those who remember all your goodness to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to open this morning by telling you about a scientific experiment that I read about in this book called Moonwalking with Einstein, which is a really fun book. The author tells the story of this fellow named Michel Siffray. He's a French chronobiologist who studies the relationship between time and living organisms. And uh, he conducted in 1962 an extraordinary act of self-experimentation. What he did was he spent two months living in total isolation in a subterranean cave. And so he had no access to a clock, he had no access to a calendar, and he had no light from the sun. He slept and he ate only when his body told him to, and he sought to discover the natural rhythms of human life and to see how those would be affected by living beyond time with nothing to mark time. And what he found was that his memory quickly deteriorated. In, in the dreary darkness, uh, Joshua 4 writes, his days melded into one another, and they became one continuous, indistinguishable blob. There was no one to talk to, not much to do, nothing novel to impress itself upon his memory. He had no chronological landmarks by which he could measure the passage of time. And at some point, he, he stopped being able to remember what had happened the day before. His experience had made him into a man who could not process time, a man who could not remember anything. He, he found that some days he would stay awake for 36 hours, other days for eight hours, and he had no way to tell the difference. He had no means of measuring time. And when they finally came to him, they came to get him on September the 14th, and he had tried to measure the passage of time and to mark the days, and he thought it was August the 20th. He had totally lost track of where he was. I tell you that story because I think the burden of Psalm 78 is that we must remember what God has done. So I would invite you to open this, your Bible this morning to Psalm 78, where we are going to see that in order to thrive as the people of God, as a whole, as a group, as a church, we must remember what God has done. And in our individual lives, as individual Christians, we must remember what God has done for us personally. Because there's a real sense in which we are what we remember. I even experienced this this past week as, as uh, Janet died uh, uh, a week ago Thursday, and I, and I got ready to do her funeral uh, this past Thursday, and in the, in the time between her death and the day of her funeral, I sought to talk to uh, her sister and her brother and um, 
her, her children, and I, and I was seeking memories, memories that they had of their mother or their sister, because at that point, once she's gone, all we have of her are what we remember of her. Memory is so significant. So we must remember what God has done. Um, as we look at Psalm 78, you know, this is a really long psalm. There are 72 verses in this psalm. Denny, how many verses did you preach last week? Like six? That's not fair. He went six verses and didn't finish his passage. But I think, I think we're going to get through these 72 verses. And we're going to get through, you know, in, in recent days, um, uh, there was a recent Sunday when I had a prop up here, first time I've ever done that. Another recent Sunday when I tried to open with a joke, that didn't go over very well. Today, I haven't done this very often, but I have done it on occasion, we're going to use a PowerPoint slide. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the overview of Psalm 78, and, um, and I'm going to, we're going to put the overview of the psalm on the screen um, in order to try to help us get our footing and know where we are to, to keep track of of what we're seeing. And, um, you, know, you know, numbers are really helpful. So 72 is actually a multiple of 8, isn't it? In, in fact, uh, 8 times 10 is 80. If you subtract one set of 8 away from that, it's 9. So 9 times, 70, nine times 8 is, uh, did I say 8 times 10? Yeah, you know, I'm not a math person, sorry. 8 times 10 is 80. You take one set of 8 away. My mind was doing the right thing. My mouth was doing the wrong thing. You take one set of eight away, and you have 72. So nine times eight is 72. So what we have here, essentially, are almost nine sets of eight-verse units. And in the first one, um, this guy Asaph, this is a mosquito of Asaph. So Jake, you can put the first thing up there. In the first unit, Asaph is going to tell us why he's writing this psalm. Asaph is writing Psalm 72 so that the generation that's rising up might not forget, but remember. And then in the next eight-verse unit, verses 9 through 16, Asaph is going to talk about how a previous generation turned back and forgot, and he's going to tell us all about what they forgot. And then the third unit is actually a 16-verse unit, so it's two sets of eight combined. And in this one, what Asaph is going to tell us about is the way that Israel tested God and then fell when God struck them in the plague of quail that um, was read to us earlier in the service. Uh, Chris read to us from Numbers 11 about the incident that Asaph is going to rehearse here in verses 17 through 32. And then at the middle of the whole thing, in verses 33 through 40, what Asaph is going to focus on, and, and in, in, in many ways this is the central point of the whole psalm, Asaph is going to focus on the way that God is merciful in spite of Israel's sin, in spite of the sinfulness of God's people, God continues to show mercy. And then we have another 16-verse unit. So you can see how verses 17 through 32, that's 16 verses. And then verses 41 through 56, that's another 16 verses. And here what's going to happen is we've, we've got another account of plagues. So we had the plague that followed the quail in verses 17 through 32, now Asaph is going to tell us about the plagues that came on Egypt. And this too, Israel forgot those plagues. And so as a result of that, they tested God. Uh, in the next unit, verses 57 through 64, 
um, Israel again turned back and God forsook his dwelling place at Shiloh. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about what's going on there. And on that occasion, it's actually what's narrated in 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And then the psalm concludes in verses 65 through 72 with Asaph telling us about how God chose Zion as the place where he would build his temple and David as the man who would be his king. So let's look at the first eight verses of Psalm 78 where Asaph tells us why he's writing this psalm. He opens in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. It's interesting that word teaching there is actually the word Torah. Uh, it, often in, in the English Standard Version, the ESV, when you see the word teaching in the Old Testament, it's probably Torah. Like in, in the Proverbs, for instance, as a father speaks to his son, hear my son, the father says in Proverbs, the teaching of your mother, and it's Torah. So what they're teaching in Proverbs is the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and what Asaph is teaching in Psalm 78 is the Pentateuch. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your, your ears to the words of my mouth. And then I think verse 2 is curious because he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. This is a really interesting statement because as you can see from this overview, what he's going to tell them is their history. He's giving them a history lesson. Why does he call it a parable? Why does he think that this history lesson is dark sayings? You know, you could, you could render the word parable, you could render that proverb. It's, it's the same term that's, that's translated as, it's actually the title of the book of Proverbs. Um, but Jesus quotes this verse in Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 13, after telling parables, and I think that influences the translation of this term as parable here. We'll talk more about what Jesus is doing in Matthew 13 at the end. Uh, let, me, let me propose a reason that Asaph might be calling this history lesson that he's about to give a parable and dark sayings, or that word dark sayings could be rendered riddles. I think he considers this uh, parabolic or proverbial riddling because of the way that the past points to the future. What we're going to see is that Asaph is going to talk about the exodus from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the passage through the wilderness, and then the conquest of the land. And every one of those elements comprises, they comprise pieces of a pattern that the New Testament authors claim is fulfilled in Jesus. And I think that Asaph is calling this a parable and dark sayings because he expects the way that God saved Israel in the past to be the way that God saved Israel in the future, which is another reason this needs to be remembered. And then uh, verse 3, it sounds like Deuteronomy chapter 6 has been obeyed. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, Moses has just said in, in verse 6, these words that I'm commanding you today shall be upon your hearts. And then the next thing he says is, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Look at what Asaph says here in Psalm 78, verse 3. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Okay, so uh, the things that Moses wrote in the Pentateuch, the fathers communicated those to the sons. Asaph is about to teach these things to Israel. 
and he considers it a parable and dark sayings, these things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. And he says that the, the, the chain of passing this down through the generations is going to continue in verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. So the fathers have told Asaph's generation, Asaph and, and his uh, compatriots, they're going to tell the next generation. And this is what, this is what they're going to tell here in verse 4. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Okay, so we'll see what he's talking about as we continue. But he's committing himself to passing these things on. Verse 5, he, this is the Lord, established a testimony in Jacob. Jacob being a way of talking about the people of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. A testimony is an eyewitness account. So the Lord established a testimony to what he had done in Israel and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So he's still just sort of meditating on Deuteronomy 6. Verse 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. But keep his commandments. Okay, so uh, the, the Pentateuch was given to Israel for the news of what God had done to be passed down generation to generation, not forgotten but preserved, so that the commandments would be obeyed. And then here's where he's driving in verse 8. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Now there's something key here going on. Because what he's saying is that if you can hold on to the word of God, if you will be people who have the word of God in your heart, you won't be like the fathers of Israel who were a stubborn and rebellious generation. And then he goes on to say there in verse 8, a generation whose heart was not steadfast. Another way to to render that, that reference to their heart not being steadfast, it would be to say a generation that did not prepare its heart. That word steadfast can, can refer to preparation. So, so it seems that Asaph is saying that if you will hold on to the truth of the scriptures, the accounts of what God has done, the, the might and the wonders and the glorious deeds from verse 4, if you'll hold on to that, that's what it looks like to prepare your heart. And then he goes on at the end of verse 8 to say about the fathers, the stubborn and rebellious generation, that their spirit was not faithful to God. I think there's a logical relationship here. You prepare your heart through the scriptures so that your spirit will be faithful to God. So here's here's what I would say we can take away from from Psalm 78 verses 1 through 8. The scriptures prepare the heart and produce faithfulness. The scriptures prepare the heart and produce faithfulness. And in verses 1 through 8, Asaph is saying, I'm going to tell you the story. You need to hear my teaching so that you won't be like those previous generations who didn't prepare their hearts. As a result, their hearts weren't steadfast and they weren't faithful. And that brings us to his first illustration of exactly what he has in mind in verses 9 through 16. Uh, Actually, it, I'm, I'm, 
the, one of the reasons that I put this on the screen today is because I want you to see the relationships between the parts of this psalm. I also want you to see how, what a work of art this psalm is. I mean, it's a long psalm, and it's carefully structured. So Asaph put a lot of thought into this for us, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to get it all right. And, and it's, got, it's got powerful and profound truths to teach us. So verses 9 through 16 are actually dealing with the same episode that verses 57 and 64 are going to deal with. So the second unit and the second to last unit deal with the same thing. And what it's dealing with, look at verse 9. It says, The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. He, he's dealing with the episode in, second, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we're not going to take the time to go read that, but let me just tell you what's narrated in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Leading up to 1 Samuel 4, we learn that um, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were wicked men. And they were abusing people at the, this tent dwelling of God. It's even referred to as the temple, but it's not the temple that Solomon would later build, the one that David wanted to build. It, it's, it's probably the tabernacle that they brought out of the wilderness. And that was set up in this town called Shiloh, which is in the territory allotted to Ephraim within the nation of Israel. And in fact, later in the psalm, down in verse 60, Asaph is going to say, talking about the same episode, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. Well, so Eli and his sons are, are not doing what they're supposed to do. And the Philistines come against Israel in battle. And the Israelites go out to fight the Philistines. And they think, they think, we better take our little rabbit's foot with us. That's the way they're considering the ark. They think that if that regardless of the way that they live, if they will take the Ark of the Covenant out with them into battle, that God will defeat their enemies. And what happens is they take the Ark out into battle, and Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, are struck dead, and the Ark is captured by the Philistines. And, and uh, Asaph is now reflecting on the meaning of that episode for us here. He says in verse 9, The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. Look at verse 10. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. There's Torah again. They refused to walk according to the scriptures, the instructions that God had given in the Bible. And there's a relationship between verse 10 and verse 11. Look at verse 11. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. So these are people who are part of this stubborn and rebellious generation that Asaph doesn't want the people he's talking to, his audience, to be like. They didn't keep the covenant, they refused to walk in the Torah, and they forgot what God had done. And then now what Asaph is going to do is celebrate the power of God. Verse 12, in the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. Zoan is a a place in Egypt where the Israelites had been in service, which reminds us that these Israelites, they were enslaved in Egypt. And then verse 13, he divided the sea and let them pass through it. God brought Israel through the Red Sea. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, pillar of fire and cloud, all the night with a fiery light. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. Okay, so Asaph has just celebrated. 
the exodus from Egypt, the passing through the Red Sea, and then the provision of water in the wilderness. Now, why would he reflect on that in relationship to the defeat in 1 Samuel chapter 4? Well, the, the point he's driving at is if you will reflect on the power of God, if you will know God, if you will come to the place where you realize I am in a covenant relationship with a God like no other, who else could do this? I mean, this is like if, if Israel will, will regard the ark correctly, if they will keep the covenant, if they will walk in God's commandments, it's like they're the only nuclear power in the ancient Near East, you know? There is nobody that's going to be able to defeat Yahweh in battle if they'll keep the covenant, if they'll walk in God's commandments. But they forgot God's wonders, and they broke God's covenant. And as a result, they regarded the ark wrongly, and they were defeated. So I think we can say from verses 9 through 16, just as we said from verses 1 through 8, that the scriptures prepare the heart and produce faithfulness, which has an application sort of embedded in it, doesn't it? Give yourself to the scriptures. We are what we remember. What kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be a person whose life reflects the teaching of the scriptures? Well, you've got to give your mind to the scriptures. You've got to discipline yourself for the scriptures. You've got to be looking for ways to get intake of the Bible, whether it's listening to it or reading it or memorizing it or meditating on it. You need to be availing yourself of all of these, these approaches to the scriptures. And then from verses 9 through 16, I think we can say, given the way that Asaph puts together the defeat of the Ephraimites with what they forgot, God's awesome power only fails those who forget it. God's awesome power only fails those who forget it. So this is another, another reinforcement of this truth, isn't it? That you need to know the Bible. Verses 17 through 32 bring us um, to this next incident. And here, Israel tested God and fell in the plague of quail. Look at verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. So Asaph has worked backwards here. He's no longer talking about that generation in 1 Samuel 4. He's now talking about the generation that came out of Egypt, the generation that sinned in the wilderness. Verse 18. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Now, think about this for a moment. These people have been brought out of Egypt miraculously. It was impossible for God to get them out of Egypt, and God did the impossible. And then they get out into the wilderness, and it's impossible for them to get through the Red Sea. And God does the impossible and brings them through the Red Sea. And then they get out there, and it's impossible for them to survive because they have no food and they have no water. And God does the impossible. And he opens the rocks and causes water to flow. And then he gives them this magic bread from heaven that tastes like honey. 
He gives them manna that just shows up when the, with the dew of the morning. And they complain because they don't have meat. You know, it, it, it's almost like... Um, it's, it's almost like being the, given the gift of life and complaining that you don't have wealth. Indy Wilson, in his book Notes from the Tilta World, he observes that, that um, um, in a typical, let's say, in the, in the moment when babies are made, you know, in, in that instant, there are like 8 million possible little seed that could fertilize that little egg, and we're all lottery winners, you know. We've been, we won the lottery, the race of life. And that's why we're here. And here we are alive, and we complain because we're not content. That's like the Israelites. They're out there eating. Look, look at what Asaph is going to do with, with, this, with this bread. Look at what he says here in verse 19. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Then they recall Moses, he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? And naturally, this didn't please the Lord, verse 21. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel, verse 22, because they did not believe in God. Let me take you back to... Verse 8, their hearts were not steadfast. Their hearts were not prepared. End of verse 8, their spirits were not faithful. Verse nine, or verse 10, sorry, they didn't keep the covenant. They refused to walk in the Torah. Now verse 22, they didn't believe in God and did not trust his saving power. They saw the saving power. Plagues on Egypt. Red Sea. And then they get out there, they don't believe his character, they don't believe in him, and they don't trust that he can do it. Verse 23, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. What Asaph is doing is he's stressing the quality of this food and the abundance of it. Look at verse 25, man ate of the bread of the angels. I don't think he's saying necessarily that the inhabitants of heaven need to eat. I think what he's saying is, this was bread that had its source in heaven. This was bread from God. He sent them food in abundance. There was no lack of it. Verse 26, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust. Winged birds like the sand of the sea. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. Now, the point that Asaph is driving at here is that God's power, so evident at the Exodus, should have motivated Israel to fear him and to walk in accordance with his instructions. And instead, they forgot what he had done at the Exodus. And they forgot what he had done at the Red Sea. And they forgot the way they followed the pillar of fire and cloud. And they forgot the provision of water from the rock. They forgot and they forgot and they forgot and they forgot. God repeatedly did the impossible for them. And Israel repeatedly forgot what he had done. And so he's not happy about this. 
what, what, what should have prompted fear and devotion and obedience and worship instead prompted only more craving. I mean, it's like the child, you know, you give them ice cream and they complain because they don't have pie. You should be thankful for what you have. This, this term here for craving there in verse 30, that's, that's the word um, we, we read or when Chris read the passage and they called that place uh, Kibroth HaTa'ava. Uh, the Hebrew word Ta'ava means craving and Kibroth means graves. So they called that place where those people were struck down after the plague, they called that place the graves of the craving because they craved wicked things there. So verse 30 goes on, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. What Asaph is driving at here is that Israel's unbelief is unwarranted and irrational, isn't it? They should believe. They should believe. God has the power to provide for us. God had the power to liberate us. He brought us through the Red Sea. We should trust him. He's also driving at the point that their craving was unsatisfied, though they enjoyed God's own plenty. They had manna from heaven. They had the bread of God, and they were unsatisfied with it. Human unbelief, human unbelief in the God of the Bible is never justified. Discontented longings for more satisfaction in greater variety, right? They've got bread. They want meat. Discontented longings for more satisfaction in greater variety, disregard the splendor of what God has given. Unbelief and discontent do not please God. It reminds me of what G.K. Chesterton said. He, he was commenting on the way that um, the people of his day were disregarding traditional morality and they wanted to advocate you know, free love with as many women as you wanted. And, and Chesterton said, I, I can never understand this desire for more than one woman. He said, keeping to one woman is a small price to pay for so much as seeing a woman. This is a, what God has given us is wondrous. The gift of life is stupendous. We should be content with what God has given to us. Israel has been freed and fed and they're unhappy. And that brings us to this central section of the psalm uh, where Asaph talks about what God did in response to Israel's discontent. All the provision didn't bring about repentance, so God gave them what would provoke repentance. Look at verse 33. He made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. This teaches that God brought on them the brevity of life. It seemed like a vapor. He made their days vanish like a breath and their years in 
terror. This past Thursday, we reflected on Janet's life. She was born in 1942, and she died in 2016. She, she lived to be 74 years old, and her life at this point seems like a vapor. And, and so God has brought this on humanity and on Israel by killing them in this plague, and that causes us to feel dismay, doesn't it? at the futility and the vanity of all things human and mortal. So look again there at verse 33. He made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. But look at verse 34. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. The reality of death should make us seek God, shouldn't it? Every one of us. There's an open casket and an open cemetery awaiting every one of us. We will all die. And in response to that, we should seek God, just like Asaph is describing Israel did. Look at verse 35. They remembered. This is the only time in this psalm that tells us that they remembered. In response to death, they remembered that God was their rock, the Most High, their Redeemer. And so uh, Asaph is getting it the way that God, God gives us what we need. God gives us what we need to prompt us to seek him. He goes on to speak of, of how fickle we are as human beings. Look at verse 36. They flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. You know, you, you respond to the fear of death with this urgent desire for God, and then some time passes. And the newness of it fades away, and you go back to living for yourself, for your own cravings. Verse 37, this, this is very similar to what we saw back in verse 8. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. Again, I think you could render that. Their heart was not prepared. They were not faithful to his covenant. And yet, in spite of human fickleness, in spite of the way that our, our passion for God Sometimes flows, and then it ebbs. Look at verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. God did not give to Israel exactly what they deserve, and God has not given to us exactly what we deserve. Verse 39. He remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passes and comes not again. So it, it seems here that what Asaph is saying is that God's compassion is provoked by his understanding of who we are as human beings. Our frailty, our mortality, the fact that we're like a wind that blows through and then doesn't circle back, has no way to bring itself back. And in response to this, God is loving and compassionate and merciful and provides means for making atonement. You see that in verse 38? Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I hope you hear this as good news. God is the, the God of the Bible is a God who makes it so that your grief and your, your guilt can be assuaged. Your, your sin can be covered and, and your defilement can be cleansed. If you'll come to this God who, who makes a way 
for atonement to be, ha- to be had. And in the Old Testament, what God did was he provided this sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is why, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, this is why we're constantly urging you to flee to Jesus and to trust in what Christ accomplished on the cross. Verse 40 uh, is, is both the end of this middle section and also uh, sort of a hinge with the next section. It says how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Verse 41, they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. In verses 41 through 46, uh, what Asaph is going to recall is the plagues on Egypt. And what he's going to tell us here is that Israel tested God and forgot the plagues on Egypt. Look at verse 42. They did not remember his power. Now, why would Asaph say this? Why would he say they did not remember his power? Well, think about these plagues that we're about to read. If if we were to behold these things, we should respond in awestruck fear. Look at what Look at what Asaph narrates here. Verse 42, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. Verse 44, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger. We're getting to the culmination. Asaph, he he specifically names um, seven, possibly six, depending on how you count them, but seven of the ten plagues. And here's the last one. Wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels, Verse 50, he made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. Verse 51, he struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. I think what Asaph is driving at here is that you will only rebel against this God if you forget how awful his wrath is. You will only rebel against this God if you forget the fact that he made the waters of the Nile blood. He caused the whole land to have darkness. And then he struck down every firstborn, even Pharaoh's firstborn son. If, you, if you're able to hold those things in mind and, and, and then you're tempted with something, you will flee temptation. You will flee temptation out of the fear of God. So we get this rehearsal of the plagues, and it's, it's fascinating how, how verse 52 contrasts God's wrath on Egypt with his tenderness toward Israel. He, he's, a, he's a destroying, wrathful, avenging God against Egypt, but he's a tender shepherd to Israel. Verse 52, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them to safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. And now we're to the conquest. 
Verse 55, he drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. And then verse 56, it sounds just like verses 40 and 41. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. Asaph is reciting all that God did in the history of God's mighty acts and Israel's disobedience because he wants to make this point. If God's people will remember and not forget who God is and what he has done for him in the past, they will trust him and they'll be satisfied. They'll be content with what he's given. And instead of that, we get more disobedience. So this is our second to last eight verse unit in verses 57 through 64. And it corresponds to the second eight verse unit. We're to that same episode in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Verse 57, they turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their idols. So the Israelites are committing idolatry. When God heard, he was full of wrath and utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, so that tabernacle where God had, in, in, had dwelt among his people. He leaves that. He abandons it, the tent where he had dwelt among mankind. And then verse 61, he delivered his power to captivity. I think that's talking about the capture of the ark there in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And his glory to the hand of the foe. If you remember at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4, what happens is the news comes back to Eli and when he hears that Israel has been defeated, that his two sons are dead, and that the ark has been captured, he falls over backward and he, and he breaks his neck and dies. And then his daughter-in-law goes into labor and she has a child and she names the child Ichabod. The glory has departed because the ark had been captured by the Philistines. That's what Asaph is talking about here with God giving his glory to the hand of the foe. Verse 62, he gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests, Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. The wife uh, who died giving birth there, she made no lamentation for her slain husband. So again, Forgetting God leads only to wrath and destruction. The sons of Eli were forgetful like their fathers. And they forfeited their access to God's presence and power. God was with them there in that tabernacle that he had indwelt. God's power would have been for them, but they forgot and they forfeited. And that brings us to the last eight verses of the psalm, which continue with that narrative, and it's fascinating what happens there in 1 Samuel chapter 5, because once they get the ark into Philistine territory, uh, as Peter Lightheart has said, it's as though the ark of the covenant goes on a victory romp through Philistine territory. Everywhere they take the ark, Philistines die and suffer plagues, to the point where the Philistines are finally like, we got to get rid of this thing. we got to send this thing back to the Israelites. And so they they load the ark up on some carts, and they just turn some cattle loose, hauling that thing off, and the cattle take it back to, to Israel. That's what Asaph is describing here in verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. 
So it's like he's out of control. Verse 66, he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. With the aid of no army, without a single warrior, invisibly inhabiting the Ark of the Covenant, Yahweh defeated the Philistines. And at that point, at that point, he was done with that tabernacle in uh, the land of Ephraim in the city of Shiloh. So verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. Uh, Joseph had this son named Ephraim, about whom that territory was uh, named, or after whom that territory was named. He didn't choose the tribe of of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. So now the Lord's going to dwell in the land allotted to the people of Judah, specifically on Mount Zion, which he loves. And then uh, verse 69 tells us about how God built the, the temple there. It's talking about Solomon building the temple. And it's comparing the temple to the heavens and the earth because the temple is a symbol of the world. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. And then verse 70, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, and I think this, is, this little he here is ambiguous. It's not clear whether this is the Lord shepherding the people or whether it's David. And, and, and in part, I think what Asaph is getting at is the Lord is going to shepherd his people through the king from David's line. And he guided them with his skillful hand. God defeats his enemies. God will accomplish his purpose through the king from David's line. In some ways, the only question for us is whether or not we're going to be a part of it. And that question comes down to whether or not we're going to remember what God has done, whether these are going to be things that we give our minds to. Think about what Asaph has, has narrated here. He started with the Exodus, and he continued through the, re the reign of David, the establishment of David as king. So we've got Exodus from Egypt, Red Sea, Mount Sinai, water from the rock, manna from heaven, quail, conquest of the land, and then down to David and the choice of Zion. This history lesson is a proverb and a riddle because, because of the way that it warns against forgetting God and what he has done and previews what God is going to do through Christ. And that brings me back to Matthew chapter 13, which I mentioned earlier. It's, it's interesting how in Matthew 13, Jesus is telling the parable of the sower. Uh, you remember that parable? The seed falls on all these different kinds of soil. And the last soil is good soil. And the good soil receives the seed and bears fruit. It's like the good soil does what you're supposed to do with the Bible. Receive the seed of the word of God and bear fruit. After Jesus has explained the parable of the sower, then he tells the parable of the weeds. And in that parable, an enemy has sown tares among the wheat. And, and, and it's like Satan has the seed of the serpent among the people of God. And these are, these are those that Asaph has told us about who were struck down in the wilderness, aren't they? And then he tells the, the, the parable of the mustard seed, this, this small seed that becomes the largest of the plants in the garden, a great tree. He's talking about the kingdom. And then again, he tells another parable about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So this kingdom that Jesus is bringing... 
is a kingdom that's going to take over the whole world as unimpressive as it may seem right now. And then Matthew says, in Matthew 13, 34, and 35, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He's talking about Asaph. And then he quotes Psalm 78 too. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That tells us that what Asaph was doing in Psalm 78 is fulfilled by what Jesus was doing in Matthew 13. And they're talking, I think, about the same thing. They're talking about the word of God coming to the people of God and doing its work in them. We are what we remember. Uh, there's another uh, line here in this book, Moonwalking with Einstein, where Joshua 4 says, how we perceive the world and how we act in it are products of how and what we remember. We're all just a bundle of habits shaped by our memories. And to the extent that we control our lives, we do so by gradually altering those habits, which is to say, the networks of our memory. You want to be sanctified? Remember the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this good word, Lord, that has the power to change us, to save us. And Lord, we thank you for the revelation of your mighty acts. We thank you for doing these wonders and how we pray that you would cause Asaph to be successful all these many years after he wrote and make it so that our generation would not be like the fathers who forgot. But Lord, make us those who study the scriptures and prepare our hearts